Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Catalonia and the secessionist urge. And Richard, for the first time in a long while, uh, media around the world are talking about Spain, and not for the best of reasons. There is this long-standing secessionist movement in the Spanish region of Catalonia. This, by the way, a region that we should note already operates with a pretty high level of autonomy, and this movement has built to a head recently with a referendum on independence that was not sanctioned by the Spanish government. In fact, it didn't really look like anything that we'd consider a conventional sort of by-the-book election. Uh, for an American audience, Richard, that may not be up to date on its Spanish politics, give us a sense of the two sides of this debate. Well, I mean, the situation in Spain and in Catalonia, I think, is one that is typical in many places. There is a strong tendency for disintegration when nations are put together where there's some degree of economic differences. And the Catalonian situation has been brewing for many years. It's been exacerbated, I think, by virtue of the fact that Spain has had a very rough time of it economically. It now seems to be getting a little bit better. Uh, but there was a situation in there in which things were getting very bad. And the question is whether or not Spain would need some kind of an EU bailout was very much on the uh, rise. It's also the case in Spain, as for example in Belgium, uh, that there's one group which is generally regarded as economically productive and another which is regarded as less so. And the Catalonians essentially think that they are the more productive portion of France. And so even though, as you mentioned, there's a high degree of autonomy, there's always some collective responsibility to the nation at large. And generally speaking, successionist movements gain fuel if it turns out that the people People who are pulling away think they're going to get richer, and they generally get beaten back when it turns out that people are going to think they're going to get smaller. So if you were to look at the situation with respect to Quebec, they always talk a good game, but since the oil is in Western Canada and they get some share of it through the federal system, uh, these things have tended to die away, and Quebec remains still a somewhat poor province, but securely within the framework of Canada. Now, with all of these particular pressures, it doesn't take too much to get a bunch of very enthusiastic hotheads to run this kind of thing and to try to push for some kind of an election. And what happens is in Spain, two things are at play. One is the internal constitution is essentially one which treats the union as indissoluble. And so it turns out there is no authorization under the, Canadian, uh, under the Spanish constitution to try to run this thing. And uh, so essentially the um, entire referendum is like an unauthorized biography. Um, it's the sort of thing which could happen, but it has no legal effect. And in addition to that, the way in which this thing was run was, to put it mildly, rather unconventional in terms of its uh, operation. Uh, what they did, in effect, was to create a situation in which uh, people could print their own ballots at home and take them to any particular location. doesn't appear as though there's any check against printing as many ballots as you want and sending them to as many places as you want. Uh, the pro-Spanish elements in Catalonia uh, insisted upon boycotting the situation. The Spanish government comes in and announces that it's going to seize ballots 
ballot boxes and does during the course of the election. And it turns out this thing carries by 90%, which to my mind means that it's too large a majority to be credible. What was clearly going on was a combination of multiple ballots and absenteeism. Uh, the Catalonians then appealed to the European Union saying, you have to understand what's going on here, please help us. But the European Union doesn't want to interfere in the local affairs of Spain and there are a bunch of other countries which are rather rickety and they don't want to start this cascade going. Uh, so essentially what's going to happen is it's going to be a political situation. It's going to end like that. And my own view is I understand the forces successionist movements. They're very powerful around the world. But generally speaking, in order for them to go, you would want to have at least two conditions. One is you'd want to have a scrupulous election in which the votes are accurately tallied and counted with everybody participating. You probably want to have this as a supermajority. And you probably want to do it on two occasions at least a year apart so as to make sure that an irreversible decision is not going to be made very lightly. And of course, nothing whatsoever in the Catalonian situation remotely satisfies these conditions. It was pretty much a political stunt, and I think in the end it will peter out, but the resentments will surely last. So those are the procedural criteria. I want to talk to you a moment about the substantive ones, because Catalonia is not without precedent. We've had most notably in the last couple of years the push for Scottish independence. You mentioned earlier the independence movement, which we see intermittently in Canada for Quebec. And of course, there are some places in the world, um, Africa, especially the Balkans, going back a bit, where we're, we're used to the map changing and, and new countries being formed. Um, Richard, for limited government types, there's usually an enthusiasm for local control. But how should we think about that when we're talking about nation states? Are there clear principles as to what's a viable independent state and what isn't? Well, I think there's some kinds of principles, and let me sort of hint at them. The first one is, I think, in order to make succession sensible, you want to have a fairly stark contrast by way of either religion or language or politics, something which really does divide people and makes it very difficult for you to have a coalition government which will take elements from both sides. A classic illustration of a failed coalition government, which was probably necessary, was the solution that was imposed upon Lebanon in 1943 when the Maronite Christians and the Muslims were about equal in number and they had a very complicated structure and it turns out that they have a prime minister and a president and they divide power and split control over the courts and the army and all the rest of that stuff. And then when the population shifts 15 years later, all of a sudden the Muslim group wants to renegotiate, the other group does not, and you get yourself kind of bloodshed. And I think it's fair to say for the last 50 years, Lebanon has been a country which has been riven by all sorts of factional divisions, and it's going to stay that way precisely because nobody could find out a way in which you could get a territorial division, given the pockmarked natures of the various groups, um, uh, to get this kind of separation. Uh, so you want to have that. Um, you want to have these things. And you've got to have relatively strong concentration. So if you go back, for example, to the situation in India at the end of the mandate in 1947, um, what you did is you had to divide the uh, Muslim sections from the Hindu section. There are other religions in there which only make it more difficult. And when Mountbatten rather went over there, his initial instinct was to try to work a deal. And then when he saw the depth of the conflicts, he took exactly the opposite position. They managed to divide the country into a Muslim country, including Pakistan and 
Bangladesh, and then they had India on the other side, and probably a million people uh, got killed somewhere along the line in the reshuffling of these interests, which may have been a small number relative to what would have happened if they had all made together. Then, of course, Pakistan is on two sides of the Indian subcontinent, and that splits up into two nations. Other illustrations of this, Singapore, uh, when Malaysia is independent, it splits off and becomes a separate city-state, because, again, the difference between the ethnic Chinese and the Malays is pretty strong, and you really can't keep this in place. You look at Czechoslovakia, it becomes the Czech Republic, and Slovakia, again, it's a combination of language and political separation with easy borders. And so when you have those things, um, you can see it taking place. And what's so remarkable is if you start to look at the map, the number of cases in which two small countries decide to amalgamate into one bigger country seems to be very, very small. And in cases like Yugoslavia, you often see one country splitting up into five countries, and it turns out only one of them, Slovenia in the north, is actually a country which breaks off with peace. Everything else, it turns out, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and so forth, all of these places have immense bloodshed before it settles down. Uh, so this is a life-or-death issue, and I think in general... In favor of partition is the strong answer. I don't think that Catalonia has got the same kinds of differences. I regard it mainly as a wealth difference rather than a deep ethnic split. And my guess is that one probably will not take place. With respect to England and Scotland, um, and the Scots have to realize if they try to go it alone, they have to put together an infrastructure, which will be very difficult for them to do. They don't even have a national bank the way the Bank of England is and so forth. Uh, so the second principle is you probably don't want to break up a country if one of the parts is a stub end which may not be big enough to sustain itself in international affairs. I don't think people would say that about Scotland, but I think there's certainly uneasiness there. But I think we could look forward in the next 10 or 20 years to more and more of these movements starting to take place, particularly in places like Africa, where there's massive amounts of instability, and in the Middle East, where there's again been a recent referendum with respect to the formation of Kurdistan, a country which, if it ever formed, sits unhappily, right, on the boundary lines of Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran, maybe Afghanistan, right? This is, shall we say, contested territory from top to bottom. Richard, while we're on the topic of sovereignty, we should talk about an outlier from the American context that's been in the news lately, Puerto Rico, which is, of course, devastated recently by a couple of hurricanes. And, and this, I think, has provided a civics lesson for some people who didn't know that there are such things as American territories, places that the U.S. controls but that don't have statehood. There are five of them, in fact. In the Caribbean, you've got Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and in the Pacific, you've got Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands and American Samoa. And then there are a bunch of other territorial holdings don't really have much of a population. But Puerto Rico has been in trouble since well before the storm hit. They've had these deep-seated financial problems, and a lot of critics say that their sort of intermediate status as neither uh, an independent state uh, nor a part of the United States has, has only compounded that. Is being a territory like that sort of an untenable arrangement? How do you think about that? Well, I think with Puerto Rico, internal mismanagement is a huge portion of the situation. And I mean, they run up $75 billion in debt, much of it to external sources, some of it internal. And there's an entire commission that was put together to try to sort this thing out. And it turns out that there's just constant struggles over whether or not it's constitutionally appointed in an appropriate way as to whether or not the local sales credit should get priority over the international general bondholders and so forth. I don't think 
think it's a territorial problem that's causing this. I think it's a case of a relatively core company living beyond its means and engaging in the kinds of progressive politics which assume that there's going to be somebody else to bail you out. And I think if you were to actually look at the transfer payments that go between Puerto Rico and the rest of the United States, I would think that they would be uh, the recipient of net subsidies so that looking at the thing from the overall, it's hard to say why the territories are really hurting them if in fact they get these massive cash infusions. Uh, there are these referendum, and you know, again, they're like every other referendum. Uh, they're non-binding, and they're often run on a hapsdash basis. But I would be perfectly happy if Puerto Rico decided to become a separate country and to operate in the international arena on its own. I would even think that the United States would be pleased uh, to give at least some financial aid to going there. Bringing it into the United States, and particularly if you mention the other four, is going to be an absolute huge fight because there's no question that the Republicans will not be happy in seeing two more Democratic senators. And if you had five territories coming in there with a total combination that's very, very small, it's not going to work at all. The other thing about Puerto Rico is it's emptying out. I think they lost something like 300,000 people even before this particular hurricane, many of them moving to the state of Florida. Um, So it's a complicated type situation. And I'm almost certain that you will not see this thing uh, result in statehood. There's going to be too much opposition to that. Uh, Independence, I think, is a slightly more alternative. But in the end, uh, what happens is these things become so entrenched in their strange ways that the current equilibrium, even though it's nobody's first choice, turns out to be everybody's second choice. And so there it starts to sit. So my guess is that notwithstanding all these perturbations, uh, we will see Puerto Rico in its current status for a good deal of time, and that the basic problems you have with Puerto Rico are how you mount a sensible rescue campaign, and on that issue, I think many people, myself included, I think the president has done a very poor job on that. Uh, The obvious point here is you don't want to get into a spitting contest with the Puerto Rican mayor of San Juan, and you certainly don't want to keep the Jones Act restrictions in place so as to make it twice as expensive to get goods there. And you certainly don't want to give FEMA credit for running this thing particularly well when all of its contingency plans seem to fail. So there are lots of things you can do to improve the situation in Puerto Rico, which do not require a change in its legal status. The final question that I'll pose to you, there are those who lay the separatist impulses that are going on around the world at the feet of globalization. And they say that people feel so buffeted by outside forces that they feel a need to retrench in a familiar community and, and to assert these centripetal values like nationalism. As someone who's largely sympathetic to globalization, how, how do you react to that line of thinking? Well, I think it's probably a mistake. If you're going to try to be a local country in a small country, what you do so is because you want to have greater internal cohesion. But there's nothing which says that greater cohesion is something that's going to require that you take a view which keeps the wall all the way out uh, to the distance. Uh, you don't want to do that. You want to do exactly the opposite. You want to make sure uh, that everything is going to be open. And so if I were to try and become local, it would be to advance free trade rather than to advance any kind of situation in which you're going to go in the opposite direction. To give you a kind of a simple-minded example on this, if you start looking at Brexit, which is, after all, another form of moderate separation, uh, uh, the Brexiters turned out to be of two flavors. There were some who were, as you said, 
people who were generally isolationists and didn't want all this newfangled European stuff to taking place. But I would think that the more intelligent and the more articulate version of this and the more influential version of this was exactly the opposite. There were people who thought that the EU restrictions made it difficult for them to engage in free trade with other nations, Australia, Canada, and the United States, and they wanted to get out for exactly that reason. Daniel Hannan, who's a fairly articulate spokesman, took exactly that kind of line. And so long as you have those sorts of lines there, it seems to me that you can't draw the particular correlation. If you're a small nation, if anything, free trade means more to you than if you're a big nation because your internal market is so small. So if you look at successful small places, New Zealand, Hong Kong, um, Singapore, they're all free trade kinds of nations because no other solution that you could possibly put into place could ever work under those sorts of circumstances. So I think, in effect, there is certainly a danger of that, but there's a danger of that same sentiment in the United States where the consequences are less disastrous because our internal market is somewhat larger, but certainly in the long run, uh, the greatest calamity of a Donald Trump administration would be its uh, ability to shut down borders by saying all these foreign trade deals that we have are rotten and then cutting off immigration on the same theory. Uh, Small countries need a world economy more than larger ones, and so if that revanchism is effective in a local situation, I think it poses real dangers uh, for the successionist movement. Ironically, these are most acute when it turns out that the movement becomes successful. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.